So here's where we've been so far in our series. In the first week that we covered the purpose of the church, Morgan introduced us to the series. We actually kind of asked the question a little bit of what constitutes the church or what constitutes a church. We started giving some scriptural support and evidence that the New Testament had always contemplated that there would be a church. And that was the beginning of kind of an introduction. The second week, Morgan went further a little bit and showed us some more of the purposes and functions of the church. And we actually studied a couple of them. You'll see a little bit of that tonight. And then we spent some time trying to define, should there be some sort of limit or some sort of subset of beliefs that you at least should believe to be a church? And Morgan attempted to put on the board maybe some of the, the least number of beliefs to still say that you're part of Orthodox Christianity. And while we acknowledge that we could probably debate some of them, uh, the point is probably that, yeah, it would be good to know that there are some things from a belief standpoint that should be there for it to be a church, or at least to be an Orthodox Christian church. And then last week, we started to really narrow the focus. Last week, we answered basically one question. Was it the original intent of the New Testament for us as Christians, the New Testament writers, whether you look at Jesus, Paul, Peter, whoever is writing, was it the intent in the early church for Christians to join a local church? And I think we answered that last week, and I would say we answered it pretty conclusively. So tonight as we press forward, I'm not going to go back over that material. I'd refer you to what we did last week, but we really looked at the local church, the concept of a universal church, where it comes from, and we began to evaluate the churches in America today. Most of our discussions, you remember, was really grounded in the first century. What did they intend before we could start evaluating? We needed a benchmark, and that's what we did last week. Tonight, we're going to start to respond to the questions that we got on the response cards. We got a lot of cards back and a lot of questions. We will not get through the questions tonight. Uh, and I say respond to, I, I first wrote answer, but I want you to talk to me tonight and give me your responses because a lot of these questions really don't have a definitive answer. And I think we could even have a variety of beliefs about some of the questions and I still think we'd be okay. You know, even last week in our discussion as we started to evaluate what is a church and when does a group become a church, I said there's a lot of gray area in there, and we're going to see some of that tonight too, and that's okay. I just wanted to answer last week conclusively the idea that I don't have to belong to any local body at all, and that, I think, is outside any kind of prescription in the New Testament or any other book I've ever read. I can't find somebody saying that, and we talked about that last week, but tonight, it's going to raise some more gray questions, like what exactly does it mean to be a church? So let's start looking at some of those things. Here are the questions that I think we answered last week that we don't have to answer. These are from the cards that you asked, but I believe they've already kind of been answered. Is being a Christian attending a church service related? Yes, that's what we spent all of last week kind of talking about. And there is a relationship. It was the intent that we join a local church. Should the global or local church take precedence? We covered that. We actually looked in depth at this word ecclesia to try to understand how we got the translations of church in our Bible and where some of our confusion is. But we saw that that word actually points to a local church and a local assembly. And then we answered a little bit of what's the purpose of little c church? Is it necessary? Is it an option or not useful? The word that kind of throws me in that question, and I just worded it the way it was on the card, is service. Because I believe that there is a purpose for the little c church, and it is necessary. It's not an option. Of course it's useful. But the question we're going to tackle a little bit later is, do I need to go to a church service? And that word service in there is the one that I'd love to hear feedback. So you guys can jump in any time about that. But let me, you'll see this on the next slide. So you can start thinking about the pros and cons of a service. And I assume by the way it's written that the person who wrote this card is thinking about Sunday morning like at a 9 o'clock or a 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock service where there's kind of like a set liturgy of some kind where you go and you do these things, is that required or necessary? Is it optional? And maybe you can answer that. As you can see, like, I'm not going to take a strong position on it right now. Okay. I believe we answered most of that except for that word service last week. And I believe you can go back and listen to that if you want more information. So let's tackle some more of your questions. Is it enough just to go to Exodus? Why should we go to church as well? 
And I think all of these questions, I'm going to read them all together because I think they're all very related. These are from different people. Is it okay to only join a church group and not go to a service? Could a group of people interacting around a dinner table qualify as a church? Can any Christ followers in community be considered a church? Can ministries of the church develop into churches, or do they always remain just ministries? Anyone want to jump in and give your opinion on this? Yeah. I think it's tough just because it depends on how we define church. Like, and I know that's theoretically what we've been doing, but we haven't really defined church. Is people meeting around a dinner table? Is any Christ followers in the community in the ministry? Are all those meeting those things? Like, let me remind us of what Morgan defined as some of the necessary elements that a church should do. Now, remember, that doesn't mean that nobody other than a church can do these things, but that if we're defining a church, a local church, it usually meets somewhere in these six criteria, which are an element that's prayer, worship, proclamation, and teaching, a place where the spiritual gifts are used primarily for the body in the body, a place where we participate with God's mission in the world, a place where we express love for one another, or as other people would say, a place of covenant community, which means you commit to be with and to care for a certain group of people, the sacraments like communion and prayer and baptism, and a place of church discipline and authority and some sort of structure. And we, of course, picked those apart a couple weeks ago and said, well, I could do some of those on my own. We kind of dealt with some of that last week. But let's just bring back to mind that those are the things that, that should be done by churches. Now, I don't mean to say to the exclusion of others. It's just say church should do these things. And I've seen lists that also have six or seven or five different elements they're very close. Some people might say, well, I quibble with this one, I quibble with that one. So even among all those people out there who are studying like ecclesiology or who are ecclesiologists, who actually spend time just doing nothing but studying what the church should be, um, we'll have a list somewhat very similar to this. So let's use this without actually like, you know, canonizing the list. At some point, these things would be expressed. So we go back to the questions that people are asking, and that I think is probably part of the answer. Some of these groups might be moving in that direction, but maybe they're not there yet because they're missing an element that might be necessary and required. Push back? Yeah. So I guess my question would be like, a lot of those things that I do, but I don't do them on a weekly or maybe even monthly basis. Like the timeline to fulfill all of those things might be like the course of an entire like year in a ministry or something like that. So what time would you say is like appropriate or like what do you think is the best um, for all of those to be present within like a given time, you know, because I could be like, oh, well, my entire life is spent, you know, like going to church when I've done all of those things just once my entire life, like that span. Um, so what timeline, I guess, are we looking at? Can I ask you first why you, you describe that it takes some time to do those things? Like what is the thing that prevents them or what is the thing that regulates the time between it in your life? I think just actual situations coming up, like there's not a need for church discipline unless something comes up. There's not a need for baptism unless someone gets saved. There's not a need for, you know, like all of those different kind of just like the life um, situations as they present themselves, I guess. And I think that partly answers the question because I think the things that we have to do have to be regular enough to be effective for their purpose within the church. I don't know that the answer to the question is they must be done weekly. Right? Take the element of communion, just one simple thing. There's a commandment in scripture that we do this in remembrance of the Lord. He commanded it for us to do, right? And we do it. Some of us don't understand why. Some of us don't get it. Some of us can quibble with communion. And one quote I came across this week that really impacted me in this area and others is, the Christian life of discipleship is one of faith and obedience, not necessarily understanding logic and assent. We don't have to understand every aspect of Christ's teachings or, or all the teachings in our faith to say, well, until you explain it to me to my liking, I will not obey it. Actually, that takes away the mystery of our faith. There's some things that just don't make any sense we're commanded to do. One of them is communion. You could say, like, some people love communion. Some people think, I don't really get it. The Lord said, do this in remembrance of me. If you do it once every five years, you're probably not remembering him very often enough. But there are churches that do it every single day. And you might say, that's not necessary in our church. In fact, many churches will do it only every Sunday. Some churches do it once a month, right? And so the frequency question comes down to when is it effective enough 
that it's actually happening. Like if we baptize everybody once every five years, we just gather them all up, I'd say probably better like you said. Maybe with the frequency set by, we are to believe and be baptized, so somebody is baptized when they believe. You know, that's an a public expression of the commitment they've made. I'm weary though when it's because our life is in the way or when we don't want to commit to a body that would make us obey more often than we would like. That's when I get a little bit nervous about the frequency. Jeremy. Yeah, I was just going to say, it seems to me to be also just a matter of how you grew up and your perspective. You know, some churches, you baptize, I think, you said, like, when they're saved. So we baptize babies. We baptize babies all the time. And that's a part, it's not just a thing that we do, but it's a part of what the church I go to and work at. It's, it's part of our theology. It's part of our life. It's part of our sacramental life. We do communion every Sunday. And that, that communion is the center of worship. Everything else, I mean, this is just in our church, but everything else that happens in that service is secondary to what happens during Eucharist. So it depends on your perspective. And that's why I'm not sure we can come to like the answer per se, because I'm very comfortable with, you know, looking at the service with like the Little Seed Church service as like a very vital part of our Christian life because it's sacramental in a way, and that's, and that's how I look at it. Um, it's one of those things that I don't know we have an answer to, per se, but maybe just, it's from your vantage point. So, but that's, that's just me. Okay. Morgan? Well, I think when she's talking about that idea of frequency, like that first point on there, the public proclamation, like the witnessing aspect and the hearing the, the scriptures and reading and praying, like that, I feel, is something that should be happening often. So. I don't think churches just made up the once a week service for the heck of it. You know, like I think things like that where you see in Acts people devoting themselves to teaching. Like if you're going to devote yourself to prayer, to teaching, to fellowship, yeah, maybe a Sunday morning service fits into that somewhere. It's not the, the end all be all, but it surely gives you reason like, hey, let's make sure at least once a week we are attempting to provide the space for people to come together to pray, to worship, to uh, read scripture, to learn. Sort of what if you didn't go Sunday, but you were part of a group on Wednesday that worshipped, prayed, uh, taught, uh, maybe served together, you know, did some of these things. And if someone believed, they were baptized, you had communion once in a while, like you did those things. Uh, but you just said, I really don't feel like I want to be part of the larger gathering of our church. I just want to be part of this smaller gathering that is part of a church and is doing a lot of these things that we were talking about. What do you think of that? Well, I think you would maybe need to ask, like, why? Why? What are your motives behind that? Um, I think that's, because, I mean, especially if we're, if we're answering this question, you know, isn't it enough to just go to Exodus? I mean, at least from the perspective of, of the leadership, uh, which is you, is saying, like, well, we're a ministry of a part of a larger church, you know, and so even when it kind of combines the idea of discipline and structure and also, um, yeah, just the pastoral aspect of saying like we we are not a church, you know, like we're, we're openly stating like this is not our intention, um, at, but we are functioning as a part of a larger church, and we're certainly wanting to have authority in people's lives and love others, and you know, provide a space where we can be a disciple. Um, so with that, if you're talking over each other, if one, you know, like that, that to me signals something, you know, where you might want to question why. What, what is holding you back from wanting to be a part of that larger body when that smaller ministry is openly stating, we're not a church in and of ourselves, we're not. Okay, Phil? Part of it, like I'm struggling with these ideas, you're saying like, isn't it enough to just go to Exodus? Like for me, like, and that's not my question specifically, but for me, I think that idea would stem from this. Like, well, I want to know at least for myself, when I'm going to a church service, to a group of ministry, whatever I'm going to, like, why am I going? Like. And not like, I don't, a lot of people were bashing the whole like consumerist capitalist mentality yesterday or last week, but I, like, I think it is valid to say, what am I getting out of this? Because if this is not benefiting me and I'm not benefiting anyone else, like, then I shouldn't be going. Like, I don't think that that's a good thing. Um, I think that that's not a valid use of time. And so I think the question is more, should be like, well, what, what purpose is this serving? And if like a group of people meeting together, if they're serving those purposes, then we can call them a church, quote unquote. Like, and if they're not, like most, I think in my experience, most 
church services I've been to don't serve a purpose. And so we might call them a church, but for me, they're not a church because they don't serve any of those purposes. We're starting to believe the two things again, though. There is a requirement that Christians belong to a local church. That was the original intent. You're asking for what purpose? And I would say, yes, that's in part the whole series of what we're struggling with because many people, especially in your generation, have that question. But what we can't answer it with is either a utilitarian argument, which is I don't see the purpose, so therefore there isn't one, because it's very possible that we should do it because the Lord commanded it, and that's the end of it. I don't like that answer any more than you do. I'm just saying that that's the bare minimum. That's where we start with. And then I'm hoping to discover a better purpose than that. Right? But there is a floor to the discussion where you can't invalidate it based on a utilitarian view. The other thing I would say is we are, again, evaluating the question with bad experiences that we've all had. Like, for example, if you've gone to a church service and you felt like it was pointless, it would be logically fallacious to walk out and say, well, therefore, church has no purpose. It just means that that church either doesn't know it, can't execute on it, uh, maybe we didn't sync with what they were doing. So I agree that doesn't answer any questions. But what I think the way to reframe it and maybe curve it, as you were saying, is what we're really struggling with in this slide is, forget Exodus, at what point does this group of people interacting over dinner become a church? At what point do they actually become a church so that you can say, yes, it was always the intention that Christians belong to a local church and I am part of one. It doesn't look like the one you go to with a steeple or a, you know, a huge arena or whatever it is, what kind of church you go to, but it is one that does this and looks a lot like the one that Paul was writing to in 1 Corinthians. That's just our model. We get together, we have a love feast, we have communion, we're a church, there's a structure of some kind. Maybe just people having a dinner, that's probably not enough. But I'm asking the question, and at what point have they said, yes, we are a church. We're not just a group of Christians meeting for dinner. Yes? You go back again to the meaning of ecclesia as just a gather, a small gathering of people as it was understood in the common Greek language usage of being a gathering of people. They're talking about Jesus. They're talking about ways to spread the gospel. They're church to me. Yeah, but I gotta fight against that because then you could say any Christian family who has dinner on Monday night becomes their own church. You know, and, and you could, and you, and you, with that definition, you could totally isolate yourself from everyone else because you could even say, you know, me as the dad and him as the like, we have the structure. Like this is just a family unit. Like there think, has to be some separation. Let me answer it this way. That would be true, except that there are other commandments about church given in the New Testament. For example, about elders and structure. Or just the distinction that Morgan brought up early about how there was even commandments given about who should be a widow on what list and who there shouldn't. So if there was no other words spoken after Jesus did the Last Supper, after he had announced the church, after Pentecost, and that was it, then we would say maybe that would be enough. But it seems, even in the very early days, there was actual words given, here's some things that you should consider about elders, about, you know, about certain people in the church and deacons. And so there was some idea that it would meet some of these other things as well. But if those are prescriptions for things like, let's say there was already leadership being set up in the church, do those prescriptions about how things should be about the elders that are already being set up exclude all other ways of doing church? No, but I think you would have to come up with a parallel thing. So if what's the purpose of an elder? Is it to have an elder or is it because there needs to be an authority in the church? So if you had your dinner party Christianity, the, the, if you had the, 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 the dinner communion, let's call it, but there was actual some sort of authority and structure to it, whether you called them elder or not, I think that you're starting now to say all we're quibbling about is are they there yet or not, but they're on the way. But if all they did was get together, there's no accountability, no structure, no authority. We're just a bunch of Christians who love Jesus and like eating together. I would say on this basis, unless you could say, oh, yeah, we would exercise these when they came up, like what Abby was saying, then I'd say, I'm not sure you're there. I'm not, I'm not arguing. I'm not trying to say, hey, whatever your idea of church is, it has to be mine. I'm just saying the question has to be asked. Cormac. Um, this list of... It's a list of like either Jesus or um, Paul like responding to different like groups of churches, like different local churches for problems that were coming up in those groups and or at least their commands for specific people at specific times. And though I think they should be applied to a lot of 
other sponsors and should be generalized to a lot of um, to like the church in general. I don't think that it's a, a it's a like list of commands together with all of these that should be like the lowest common denominator of churches. Okay, let me respond this way. I think you missed the part where I already said that this is a list, and there are people who quibble with what the list should be, but we just need a list to work with because every list I looked at has these in there somewhere. Okay, but I think that you're probably oversimplifying to say that like for example the discussion in 1 Corinthians 12 about spiritual gifts is meant for that church. He would not be writing to correct them if it was not something that churches needed to follow. That's the reason he's writing. It's also I believe a step further the reason we have it in scripture. But if you look at the reason he's correcting them it isn't just a local issue. Sure they're not obeying but he's setting what should be the standard. And he's setting it up. We get much of our theology straight from that way. We can't say, well, I don't know if we could believe that because it was being addressing a specific problem. He would not be writing to correct them unless they were off the standard. So we can glean the standard by how individual churches were not following it. And that's how we glean our theology. We look and say, well, if they're abusing the spiritual gifts, well, what is the correct usage of the spiritual gifts? And when he's saying this is the way spiritual gifts should be expressed in the body, you think, Oh, well, they should be expressed in the body. That's not a leap at all. Jelly? I think it's, it's safe to say that if, like, if it made it in the scriptures and it's important, then we aren't to discount it. We can't look at it and say, well, he was only speaking to that church, and that's null because that church no longer exists, so therefore we don't need to hold that standard to our lives because we're not that church. Otherwise, why else would God find it important <coughs> to be recorded and for us to you know, examine it? I mean, I know that sounds very basic, but I mean, I, that's the way I look at it sometimes. Like, okay, well, it must be important because it's written down. And if it wasn't important, he wouldn't be addressing it. Okay, Joe? Going back to your original point, I would be really hesitant to call the dinner party Christianity church. I think that in my mind, church is something that's very defined, and that's okay. And everything else that we do as Christians should be defined as kind of the global church, should be the universal church. and. I think meeting with other believers and encouraging each other and doing things that don't necessarily have to be structured church, that can be an expression of who we are in the universal church. And to me, that's really appropriate and it seems fine. One of the things I keep sensing in this room is that some of you don't want something to be church or some of us do want something to be church. And that is the, that's not the right way to reach the issue. Um, what we like or don't like or what we've experienced or don't experience. So to say it simply about the, the Christians having dinner, some of us want that to be church. All right? And so it's offensive to us when someone tries to impose certain things that a church should have. And that's common. That's actually part of the research that's done about your generation, that that's one of the hardest things <laughs> about suspicion of institutions, suspicion of authority, and a resistance to having somebody say, these are some requirements of what a church is. Study after study shows that people reject that overwhelmingly. But that's not the point we're really going to reside on. Last week, I think a very important thing happened was we got to a conclusion and we think, think about the conclusion. So the conclusion we're arguing for now is that a group of Christians sitting around the table because they all believe in Jesus and they all talk about him and they have dinner, that negates us being part of a local church. Frankly, that's an insane conclusion. I'll just be honest. I mean, you can argue it. I'm reading books about it. There's not an argument to be made that you could say, that's it. Now, there's a lot of good things going on there. I'm not going to discount those. I'm just saying that if that's the basis on which we say, I therefore do not need to be part of a local congregation, an ecclesia of any kind, or an ecclesia, then I'd say we've reached a wrong conclusion. Somewhere our desire to make the argument go a certain way got us somewhere. And before I take more comments, let me show you why I think, for example, Exodus is not a church. It has nothing to do with the fact that we're partnered with a church. There are some elements that I think personally are missing. Like someone says to me, like, is Exodus a church? I'd say, here's why I think it isn't. One, we're not pastorally led or pastorally oriented. We don't have the ethos in this group or anybody, me especially, really pastors people and comes alongside of you and tries to shepherd you from where you are to where you need to be, frankly, most of you would reject it. 
So we're not even in the place where we can say that we're willing to submit to a pastoral structure. Most of you are just trying to think of the next argument most of the time as opposed to listening to pastoral leadership. And I don't really count myself a pastor. It's not my gifting at all. I, I'm just not wired that way. And that's a necessary function of a church that, for example, Exodus doesn't have. Morgan is a pastor. He has a pastor's heart. I don't have it. So talk to Morgan. <laughs> Go to him with your issues. We don't have discipline and authority as a structure. There isn't a set way that I could come to you and say, you know what, this is not working out. You're really out of the line at this point. You've got some real issues in your life you need to deal with. There's some issues of authority, anger, bitterness, rage, frustration, sexual impurity. Uh, we need to talk and you need to change. All that would happen was you would look at me and go, who are you to judge me? Probably. I'm not, I can't generalize across everybody. And it would result in you just deciding to go somewhere else or not have the discussion anymore. We are missing that crucial element. Here's some things I think we're strong in, teaching and equipping. I think there is a covenant community growing here. People in here are committed to one another for the most part. There's a core of people that see each other quite often, do things together. We spend time together, whether it's here, it's afterwards at dinner, whether it's Wednesdays, whether it's in service together. That is there, but we are missing some things like exhortation which is the proclamation thing that Morgan talked to us about the purpose of it and why it's important in a church. Because we teach, not preach or exhort, or actually try to get you to move in deeper places of evangelism, deepening your discipleship, your, your disciplines and your discipleship with the Lord, or even we don't multiply disciples. How many of us are discipling somebody right now? As a result of what we do in here, all the equipping we receive in here, we should be making lots of disciples. We ourselves are being discipled and should be multiplying disciples who we're discipling. We don't do that either. Now, some churches don't do that. I know. That's an evaluation of a church that needs to get better. Okay? So you could say, well, does that mean they're not a church because they don't have that one thing? Well, they're not doing a good job of being a church. But I just want to point out why personally I feel like Exodus is not a church because it's starting to show that there are criteria that belong in a church that we're not really doing. Are we on our way? Sure. If you said tonight, like tonight I'm announcing our independence, declaration of independence right now. We're severing all ties with everybody that has ever been in spiritual authority over us. We're going to plant Exodus as a brand new church. We got some work to do, but it could be done in answer to the question about do ministries always stay ministries or can they become churches? Sure. I mean, we do way more than most just, you know, a standard teaching ministry would do, but we got some things going. Philip? I had a question because I was thinking about that idea of like, because um, I don't disagree with you on any of that, like, but the, the idea of let's say uh, uh, not engaged in church discipline and authority, like, um, which one is actually necessary or important or commanded? Is it more important that every group I'm going to that I'm a part of is doing this? Or that as long as I have one group that does this, like for every single one of those things, like church discipline I understand, but what if like, well I have one group that does worship, so Everything else it does is just icing on the cake. Like, I feel like part of me, is, it just feels more right. Like every group I'm a part of, I should try and strive to make them be doing all those things that we should be doing. The whole definition of, well, this is a church and this isn't. Like, those are things that Christians should be doing. So I, I'm struggling with that. Like, should every group I'm a part of, should I be trying to push it towards that goal of being? There's nothing wrong with pushing it towards that goal, but I would also say that that's the reason ministries exist. I believe that you should be part of a church that does do all of those things. But let's say your church that you go to doesn't have a strong service component. There's nothing wrong with you serving in a ministry or being a missionary or something with an organization that isn't run through that church. You're still part of a local church. Yeah, it'd be ideal if they did everything, right? But as long as you had a place where you're under some sort of pastoral leadership and all those things, then if there was a part where you said, but I'd like to do that somewhere else, I don't know that you have to turn the mission organization into a church. I don't know if you have to turn the service organization into a church. I don't think there's anything wrong if they started moving in that direction. But I also think, especially on the authority one, you really need to kind of be subject in one place. Like, more of the question is, like, is serving more important or serving with other people that you're in community with more important? Like, that, that's like, or is worshiping more important or is worshiping with, like, which one is more important if you have to choose between one or the other? The model we have in the New Testament is everything done in community is better. That's the model. And we, even on Wednesday night, we were looking at Acts 2, Acts 4. Everything done in community is better. 
I'm not saying you can't do things on your own. It's just always better when you do things in community. Many of us would prefer to do them on our own because they fit our schedule, our timing, our ability, and we don't have to have one more thing. But the one more thing is the thing. It was the thing we were supposed to do, which is be in community and live out as the body of Christ. So we've just put it last on the list because we go, we don't have time because I'm doing all these other things. And I would say, free up some of those things and do that if you could. Nick? Yeah, I think this whole, uh, this is fascinating. My background, just to share real quickly, is uh, from, a, I've been going to a home church for 10 years now. Um, and very, basically our mission statement, so to speak, was trying to go back to kind of an ex- uh, very small church, you know, 10 families come together on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, all, you know, the times changed and, you know, we, communion would be around the dinner table, you know, we would have, you know, the breaking of bread with one another, um, and then in different ways would try to incorporate, to some extent, all of the elements of, of a church, and one of the biggest issues, especially towards kind of the later years in our church, was there were certain things that no matter how hard we tried, we just couldn't seem to, there was just different gifts that we just didn't really have in our body. We didn't have anyone really musical. And so people would, uh, people were really struggling with the fact that they didn't have music worship. And it was just really interesting for me seeing, um, we had this discussion, you know, different people in the body were just loved music worship that was how they you know felt um, that they were able to worship God best and so because that was lacking in our body they would you know on Sunday mornings they would be at another church worshiping and then you know would come join us afterwards or something like that and as much as that seemed like very okay to us you know it's something we don't have it was I would say incredibly like divisive and just created the, their absence from the body even during that even you know while we played our CD <laughs> and sang along it it was I don't know that I could come up with a real logical you know and be able to defend why um, they shouldn't be able to go somewhere else I just know from experience and different people in our church trying to um, get those things in other ministries or other churches and things like that because of just the the smallness of our community, it really did exactly what you're saying, is it, it hurt that community that we had. So it's an interesting that point. Let me try to cool our minds for just a moment and read you some scripture. <laughs> Here are some questions that people come up with. And I'm going to use scripture to kind of answer these so they can hear some. So I'm not ignoring those previous questions. It sounds like you guys are still struggling with them. But some of the questions that were asked were this. Should the pastor have some sort of authority over the lives of the people at the church? What are the most significant qualifications for a local pastor? What should his responsibilities be? If the church is really necessary, why is there a need for membership? And is it healthy to have a set group of leaders or should the church be run by members? Uh, you also asked about clergy. Should they be paid? Why or why not? And then the same question was asked about missionaries and pastors. Is it necessary that be fully sponsored financially, what benefit does it present? So I'll come back to those questions in a moment. Let's see if these scriptures just give us some context. They're not all the scriptures on the subject, but they do give us some illumination. Here's 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 19. The elders who direct the affairs of the church, so there's the purpose of elders, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So you can see that the original intent was that elders actually were to be the preachers, teachers. They're probably synonymous at this point with preachers. That was the early intent. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading over the grain. The worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Jesus Christ and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. So Paul is commanding. He's setting up a standard. You call it what you want. If your generation doesn't like the word command, he's suggesting in the power of the name of the Lord <laughs> that you're to have elders who have authority. And he even puts them in a place of honor such that you almost have an exception to the rule of accusing someone in Matthew 18. Here he skips a step and goes right to the, make sure you have two or three witnesses before you even approach them because they're presumed to be people of honor to start with, but of course, if you find out that's not true, then publicly reprove them. 
because everybody needs to be taught an example. So there's already a structure being built, just so you know, and he answers two questions kind of here. Yes, there should be elders, they should have authority, and uh, there should be payment to these people. And he's going to go on and defend payment several places because Paul was constantly accused of just being in it for the money. If you think institutional skepticism is your generation, it's going to on forever in the church, even from the beginning. He was wrestling with a number of churches who thought, like, what's the whole deal with you and getting paid? So maybe they were jaded also. He says this in 2 Corinthians, responding to the Corinthian church, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches. His wording here is very strong because he's upset with the fact they keep questioning him. I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. Here he's saying, I didn't take a dime from you. I was actually on support from other churches. So I think there is even a little bit of the beginnings of maybe it's okay for people to be supported. Maybe they need to be supported. I believe personally it's kind of a necessity because otherwise you're going to have people like in two different worlds constantly trying to do whatever they can to support themselves and serve the body. And if you've ever served in ministry, you know there is never time enough, energy enough to do all the things that there are in ministry. It's an unending thing that you almost have to stop yourself from going into the abyss. I have been bivocational most of my ministry life. In fact, all of it. I've never been on a professional church staff. And I used to think that was a badge of pride. Like, <laughs> I don't need that. I can do it on my own. You know what? I bemoan that. Because it's so hard to stay focused. I could not even run this small ministry if it weren't for all the people who work in it throughout the week to make it happen. Because there's not enough time in my schedule between trying to keep my family alive and all the obligations going and pay attention to ministry. I do think that people who devote themselves full-time to ministry, there's a reason why we support them, whether it's missionaries or pastors. And Paul is showing that he needed support. He just didn't want to take it from this church who is now begrudging him even that he was on support of any kind. He says that to a different church, to the church of Thessalonica, he says something similar. He says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so, it is, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believe. If you're missing the point about burden and holy, righteous, and blameless, he's saying, we didn't take a dime. Again, we wanted to give you the gospel of God and not have anybody suspect why we were doing it in any way even though a worker is worth his wages, even though that's right that a person who's a minister of God should receive. And he even says that here, again, in Thessalonians, this is 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 10, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we commanded you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. See the theme? <laughs> but here's the important point. He says, we did this not because we do not have a right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to initiate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Paul withheld in this case because he wanted to show them that everyone in the community should work. There should be no idle person. In fact, he goes on to condemn idleness in other places as well. But it's not because ministers of the Gospels are not entitled to receive compensation. It's actually probably their right to receive it because he's saying we're bringing you the word of God. And to do that, we should be not only compensated for, we should live okay just to make it by, not live lavishly. But in this case, he even declined what is rightfully given to a minister of the gospel so that he could demonstrate the more important thing that this church needed to see, which is that everybody should work for their living. So in this case, he was either on support or, as we know, Paul was very bivocational. It's the way that he set up many of the churches. 
So I think that kind of responds to some of the questions we saw up here about should they have authority? I think that's the elder structure. Um, one of the most significant qualifications, I would say, other than pastoring and leading, would probably be that element of teaching. That's the one mentioned, teaching and preaching. Um, there are other qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 5. You can look at some of those and in other places that would describe like the qualifications for an elder. And since I think elder, teacher, pastor is probably synonymous at this point, you could look at some of those. Um, the question about membership, I think, is interesting. I'm not going to stand here and defend membership to a group of people who are still not even sold on going to church. Um, but I will say that the only thing I've seen that membership has going for it is that there's references to membership, at least by counting who's in the church and who's out of the church. And that probably has, to me, more to do with authority than counting people and giving them the right to vote. There is a line given that if the person doesn't repent after this point, your authority, your ability is to say you're no, no longer part of the fellowship. Jesus and Paul both address that issue, and that's the closest thing I see to why membership might be important, is because you really can't be under somebody's authority if you haven't committed in a covenant way to be in that community and under their authority. And there would be no way to tell whether you are disciplined or not if there was no way of belonging. Does that mean you have to take a class? I don't know. Does that mean you have to have, sign a piece of paper? I don't know. I'm not going to get into that. But the idea that just membership is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of, that would kind of push back against the idea that there were certain people, and you look at the book of Acts, they were already counting the people. And they would say, this many believers came. Is it because they were doing membership or attendance? No, but there was already just the beginnings of the idea that some people were part of the community and some people were not when they did certain things. Okay, so I, that would be the closest I would come. Yeah. Here's my the second question, also going back to, you said we are not pastorally led, and that's the reason why we're not a church. I'm still wondering what those, what does it look like to be pastorally led? What is that, like a succinct definition of what it means to be pastorally led? Morgan? I don't have the full answer for that, but what I want to say, I think in the specific specific situation with Exodus, I think it'd be a strange thing if, if the leadership is specifically saying, we, do, we are not even desiring to be a church at this moment. You know, it'd be strange for people to join this church of people who are saying, wait a minute, like this isn't even our intention, nor is it our desire at the present time to, to provide such a function. So the way I see, you know, my role in, in certain things is not to be your pastor, but I certainly care deeply about people's individual discipleships. I desire to come alongside people, things like that, but I still wouldn't, I don't know if I fully feel comfortable with even people beginning, like Phil joked to me, he's like, I'm gonna start calling you Pastor Morgan. You know, just like, you know, and I'm like, I don't know how I would even receive that, whereas actually at Citrus, um, a couple of the student leaders there, one of them refers to me as Pastor Morgan because I'm a pastor at New Song Church and I'm helping them do this club thing. And I guess it may sound totally stupid, it may just be, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I received that more from him only because of, of the way I have a desire as a pastor of a church to come and help them. Um, and, and that relationship, it, it is a desire. It is an intent. And they are receiving that. And we have this thing where, yeah, this is, this is it. I, I understand it's not been invited to have a pastor, but then what? I, I don't think that's the right you know, I, it's a relationship. It's a role and it's a relationship in your life. It would be like me asking you, at what point could I become your boyfriend? Like, what are the qualifications of me becoming your boyfriend? Like, for you, it might be different than it would be for Jill or it might be for anybody else, right? Because you're going to say, well, wait a minute, I have to think of you in a certain way and I have to see you in a certain way. And then we would go Facebook public, of course. That's actually the line of demarcation. <laughs> but, but actually, that's not the craziest metaphor for really understanding. Like, one of the reasons that Morgan could be a pastor to the people at Citrus is because they look at him that way and he reciprocates in a way where he sees himself as pastoring the Christians in that club. Whereas he might come in this room and either nobody looks at him that way or he doesn't look at anybody else and it takes both sides. And I would say the same thing like even in your life, whether it's Exodus or not, if we went to a church, like we would have to have a different relationship where my role desired role in your life is to disciple you and see you move and shepherd you to a better place where you're becoming not only a deeper and more like committed disciple but to see you multiplying other disciples and doing those things so 
even if I had that relationship or that desire to be that in your life, you'd also have the choice to say, yes, I want that in my life from you in particular. And then that would begin. I feel like that's the, and I might even do it very well, but that's the beginnings. So if you look in your life at who's pastored you, who you think has come alongside you and been a pastor, and I know some of you had great experiences with people in your life who have done that. I mean, it may be by looking at like, well, what is it? What does it look like, you know? And the funny thing is there are going to be people that I will pastor and will, will have that relationship. It's a two-way thing. Randy. No, someone who just goes to Exodus and doesn't go to the church usually, um, Morgan brought up a really good question about like, you got to stop and think why I don't go to the other church. Um, honestly, it's because of the way it's taught. I mean, I get more out of this. Um, relating that into what Phil said, you know, uh, he doesn't seem to get anything out of Sunday mornings. I don't either, but I mean, I, I think we have to be really careful not to say there's no purpose for it, though. Because just because there's no purpose for us, in our minds, because we're not getting anything out of it, doesn't mean that there's aren't other people getting fed there. And uh, also, he brought up a point, too, that maybe we should be there to help others. Even if we don't get anything out of it, maybe we should just discipline ourselves to go and support the people that are there. Uh, as we've been going through that series, that's something I've been thinking of. You know, I think, Randy, it's, that's very honest, and it's good that you brought that up. I've been reading a lot of books for this series, and all of them pretty much come to one conclusion about young adults, is that church is not being done in a way that appeals to your generation. Here's something else that most of these books are coming up with. I've just read a book from Ed Stetzer called Lost and Found, and Ed Stetzer, we're probably going to watch a video from him next week. I like him because instead of most Christian books, they spend three-quarters of the book talking about what's wrong and only a chapter on what's, how to fix it. He summarizes what's wrong because we've all read it before and spends the whole book trying to talk about ways that church can improve to reach this generation better. And as I read, and I've also read David Kinneman's book that I've been reading, uh, You Lost Me, similar title, about young adults leaving the church. The ironic thing is all of them say that your generation would appreciate church that was smaller and that was interactive, which is exactly what we do here. So the way that we teach is supposedly what all the research says is the better way to reach the generation that you're talking about. Uh, I don't see that, frankly. I see that most people want to go to a large, huge place and hang out and rock out. I just want to affirm what you said in that one regard, and the research by everyone seems to be coming to the same conclusion, that smaller and interactive is better and deeper and more productive but I'll tell you from having done it for seven years, it is ridiculously difficult to do. And I can understand why nobody wants to do it. Because you don't get any gratification out of it. You just feel like, forget it. Just be better just to get a rocking band and have 500 people. Just be easier on us. And I can just talk for 15 minutes and go away. Right? And who cares if it's what it says, right? Yes? I just think it's interesting too in what you said. Like a lot of the books would come to that similar conclusion. And like, not even that I'm coming from this place, but I think a lot of people that's maybe where that desire of people saying, why is an Exodus a church? What's keeping Exodus from being a church? We want Exodus to be a church, et cetera, et cetera. Like a lot of that desire could stem from that. Like that people, at least for me, like that's why I visited a lot of different churches. And I think like, even though I wouldn't have defined it the way, there's obviously more complicated different elements, but the fact of it being small and interacting for both positive things. And since I don't see that anywhere else at all, like, it's just like, okay, well then, let's take this and change it into something that I want. It's just interesting because I could see that potentially. It just means that more churches should do this. I agree. But, you know, that it doesn't... Hard. Yeah. And Randy, you have the last comment. All right. Um, no, you don't see groups like this working on a larger scale, like you were saying. You don't see it taking off, even though that's what the research says. But I think it's mostly because to be a part of a group like this, you really have to open yourself up um, to being interactive and being a community. And people just aren't ready to do that. I mean, the people that do come to stuff like this, I mean, they really do enjoy it because that's what they've been looking for. I mean, it's just the other people, it's the fact of getting them in there and actually having them participate. Because once you participate, I mean, and honestly, I don't see most of the people in the church wanting to do that. They want to sit there, okay, I'm done with my sermon, I'm going to go get some lunch, go watch the rest of the game. Um, they're not worried about, it, you know, actually interacting and putting time into it. It's what we call survey bias. You ask people, and they start searching for what they think the right answer is and they give you something and then the research is all skewed. And I believe this from experience, which is that while anybody who does these surveys, like 70, 80% say, I want smaller groups, I want interactivity, I would say baloney to all of the people who took the survey. 
because I've lived it. I've seen where young people want to go. I've seen what kind of churches they want. And it's the opposite of what's described in the research. They start describing all of these other attributes. And the best example is one that Morgan was sharing with me where our pa- one of the pastors at Newsong was asking somebody like, well, what kind of church are you looking for? They go, I want a church where like, they're involved in the community and they're reaching out to other people and they go out behind themselves and they're saying, okay, well, what does that look like to you? And they couldn't answer the question. Like, that's just an answer that, like, it sounds good. That's what you're looking for. But, like, would you get out of bed on a Sunday morning and come serve? Most of the answer would be no. Like, that's what I want, but it doesn't mean I'm going to do it. All right? We still have an obedience problem in some respect. I'm going to close it off right there and then leave the rest till next week. There's a lot coming. I will answer this last tiny question down here, though, so we don't have to come back to it. Is it healthy to have a, s- a set of group leaders, or should the church be run by members? I know we're all in a democracy or a republic, but the New Testament model is actually to allow the elders to have the authority in the church. Um, so as much as members can vote on stuff, that's an American model. It's not bad. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But the New Testament model is that there would be a group of leaders who are responsible in stewardship for the decisions that are made in the church. All right. Let's pray. Let's heal from all this angst. Lord God, I confess openly to you right now that we need your wisdom because we're still wrestling and we're still struggling. And I feel sometimes like we make a step forward and we're still struggling as we get pushback. Lord, I'm going to ask for something that is beyond logic and beyond understanding and beyond reasons and beyond bullet points and beyond PowerPoint. Lord, your spirit dwells in every single person in this room. And so, Lord, I ask that through your spirit, you would speak to us and teach us about your church. Lord, we only do this because we are trying to struggle to live in a way that you commanded. And so, Lord, if this is important to you, as I believe it is, that the church being your body be the way that Christians express themselves in this world, in community, in a church, with you as our head, and that we be unified, if that's really that important, then convict us of that through your spirit even if that means wrestling through the most difficult aspects of why we don't want to give this over to you. And if there's insight that we've been wrong, show us where we are wrong, Lord. We want to be in you, in Christ, instead of just logically correct. Pray this in your name. Amen. Mm-hmm.